Welcome back to the show. As I said last week, I still make at least a monthly video on my YouTube channel, Anubis2814, for something I really want to highlight, but by switching to podcast format, I can save time for going the video element to focus on more things. This video is part 3 and 4 combined from my channel. Since I'm calling corporations evil, I'm not getting monetized, so consider chipping in a little on Patreon if you find this enlightening. Sit back and enjoy or fall into a deep, dark depression for Corporations Have Always Been Evil Part 2. Chapter 5. American Exceptionalism America has always been an exception to the rule of capitalism, thanks to their corporate suppression, but once the GOP shifted the party of free labor to a party of big business, corporations ate the nation up. We entered the Gilded Age, where everything appeared amazing and wonderful, but only if you looked at how the rich lived, and income inequality grew rapidly. On top of bringing in and forcing immigrants to labor for them, crushing union uprising through massacres, often poisoning towns with their waste runoff, the banking elites learned how to use the gold standard to crash the market like clockwork by hoarding gold, raising its price, and then flooding the market with it, crashing the market every 20 years, and then buying up the failing business at a steal, and then making millions once the market recovered. Around the turn of the century, there was a school thought among the rich of the idea of ethical capitalism, an idea similar to what Bill Gates is doing now of getting his fellow wealthy to give away half their wealth as a way to save capitalism as it really was getting a bad rap, just like it is in our time. Many would think they were doing good by providing for their people and generating loyalty and funding good company towns that everyone wanted to live in, though the owner still had the majority of control over the say of the issue, making all of his efforts better than his compatriots, but still incredibly paternalistic. Or they would become extreme philanthropists, which served to both ensure their name went down in history, good PR after being terrible people, and a way to avoid paying taxes. After the 1920s, which saw the biggest boom in income, followed by a market crash caused by a glut of overproduction caused by a low-paid middle class and a trade war, the Union spiked and America soured on capitalism temporarily. They got the Wagner Act, which made unions legal, but then World War II happened, which set unions back, and in 1947, Taft-Hartley was passed in an off-year election, removing unions' most useful and powerful striking tools, stopping it from spreading, making union workers an elite class, which created resentment against unions and making it impossible to fire a union worker, creating the stereotype of the lazy union worker, which corporations helped spread the resentment and stereotypes in astroturf mechanisms. It took a while for capitalism, conservatism, and corporate trust to rebuild. While the American people still called themselves capitalists, America was incredibly socialist and a mixed economy. The top 10% were taxed at 90% of their income after a certain income, though with a lot of loopholes. Roads, bridges, schools, and infrastructure exploded throughout the nation with the first national highways, though all in the name of national defense. Science spending was at 4% GDP, the highest of any nation, and the transistor, the laser, the satellite, and spaceflight all came out of science spending that we use today. William F. Buckley, paid by rich anti-unionists, began rehabilitating capitalism, purging the perceived crazies like the John Birch Society and Barry Goldwater. During the 20s, corporations had also paid for unscrupulous pastors 
to preach the greatness of capitalism as God's way while buying radio time and over enough decades it stuck, helping create the Red Scare and the godless communists being the exact opposite of American Christianity and Jesus equaled capitalism. Under Eisenhower and then Nixon, the American people began to see conservatism and pro-business parties as viable and not as much a threat to unions. Then Reagan was elected and started stripping unions and regulation for the first time, opening up the floodgates to corporations. Chapter 6. Corporations are still at work colonizing. Now don't think that just because corporations were happy to screw over their workers domestically, they somehow lost their roots in screwing over other countries in colonial manners. Corporations were some of the first to try and lobby for the Spanish-American War, and newspapers at the time helped sensationalize it. At the time, the American people got into the war for the purest of intentions, as the Spanish were holding Cubans in the first recorded concentration camps in world history, though they based the system off the internment camps created prior to the Trail of Tears for the Cherokee. Upon winning and seizing Cuba and the Philippines, as well as some other territory, the nation had a big conversation in Congress and the Supreme Court as to if they were going to be a colonial power or not, as there were no provisions in the Constitution for it. Luckily for the corporations, they owned enough representatives and justices that we decided that yes, we would become a colonial power as well. Corporations took over and bought up tons of Filipino and Cuban lands for that sweet, sweet sugarcane, and the people being impoverished made for cheap, desperate labor. We did the same thing with the Kingdom of Hawaii, a sovereign nation that a bunch of rich dudes overthrew and ended up being a territory and went from a sustainable island to an unsustainable one because most of the land was used to grow sugar now. We did the same with the Northern Mariana Islands and American Samoa. We got the empire bug so much that Teddy Roosevelt was totally cool with rich dudes helping influence a rebellion and secession from Colombia, breaking off into Panama, and even sent warships to threaten the Colombian government if they tried to take back their territory. Then, once free, the government and corporations essentially acted like mob bosses, demanding favors in place of protection, including land and bodies, so many of whom died to build the Panama Canal that America now owned and controlled. Corporations and the government loved messing around in South and Central America, because let's face it, bananas and sugar are awesome, where we get the term Banana Republic, where American fruit and sugar companies would act as political hitmen to politicians in especially Central but also South America if they didn't give them everything they wanted. The current problem in Honduras and Guatemala are directly tied to American corporate meddling, many times creating radio broadcasts calling for revolution, and it gave the CIA cover or reasons to help stage a coup, especially if a candidate had any socialist sympathies whatsoever. The Chilean people elected a communist government, and they unfortunately went with a planned economy way too quickly, causing the economy to destabilize. They privatized many industries that corporations had always gotten unfair deals out of, and the corporations put pressure on the U.S. government to stage a coup so the U.S. ended up backing a fascist murdering dictator in Pinochet because that, to corporations, was better than collectivization. Iran also had an elected leader, but demanded that Iranian people should get an actual fair amount of the money for their nation's oil, and that just wouldn't fly, so the CIA helped overthrow the government and put in the Shah. People hated him so much, they started an actual revolution, but the power vacuum allowed for the Ayatollah to take over and make it an oppressive theocracy. The Vietnam War was all about America helping France to keep their corporate holdings in Vietnam, sticking us in a quagmire and wasting hundreds of thousands of young lives on both sides. 
The second Iraq war was a corporate money grab, with no-bid contracts for Halliburton and Blackwater and poorly made infrastructure that didn't help the Iraqi people much at all, also boosting the coffers of all the military-industrial contractors that will end up costing the U.S. $6 trillion when all is said and done after the VA pays out for health care for veterans. Assuming corporations don't figure out a way to get lawmakers to privatize the VA and jack up the prices, creating middlemen, and then the government will figure out a way not to pay them because it's now too expensive. Chapter 7. Decollectivization this is a term called decollectivization where a public good ceases to be a public good and is bought up by corporations out of steel due to an imbalance in power. It always hurts the little people starting with the Dawes Act where in the late 1800s companies wanted to have native lands but forcefully removing them, especially in say the east coast area where the Iroquois lived, was a ton of work and bad press. Instead they passed the Dawes Act that divided tribal lands up into individual lands so that now instead of all of them owning the land collectively like they had for thousands of years, individuals owned a patch of that land divided up. And so many were now alcohol addicts, the companies were able to come in and buy up these lands from these new desperate owners for pennies on the dollar, and now these natives were homeless. The King of Hawaii did the same thing to his own people, which is why the coup was able to happen in the first place, as, thanks to all the royal corruption, companies came in and bought Hawaiian land exactly like they did for many natives in the U.S. for a steal. Then the Soviet Union broke up and all the nation's collectively owned industries were divided equally among the Russian people. In the middle of the decade-long recession after the Cold War, Russian oligarchs were able to buy up all these stocks for basically drinking money. Decollectivization always hurts the average person and is a legal tactic corporations just love. China went from being a nation where everyone was poor to a nation where most people are poor but with the most millionaires of any country in the world and super cheap labor making it communist in name only. But since they are a one-party system, no one can call them on it. The U.S. spent billions on technology in the 60s and the 70s, giving us the transistor satellites, the laser, the transistor satellites and laser, changing the game entirely on communications technology. America went from three heavily regulated TV channels that ensured the news was all non-profit to hundreds. They created the cable 24-hour news, though companies like Fox decided instead to strip out everything that made it news like traveling, fact-checking, and reporting, but keep the trappings people were used to that signaled legitimacy and replace all but one hour of its news channel with opinion creating fear, outrage, and misinformation among the public. The digital revolution began killing newspapers and at the moment all the news, TV, radio, and newspapers was then able to be bought up and owned by six giant corporations. This echoes the Weimar Germany where so few owners of the media allowed for these people to be divided and the truth became partisan. Chapter 8 The Tech Boom and Bust Cycle with the rise of the personal computer and the internet, both parties threw themselves at these new tech giants, eating up anything they said as gospel truth. The Democrats, which from the 50s to the 90s were all about enforcing labor laws, got tons and tons of money from tech corporations, along with socially progressive support and warm fuzzies from TED Talks, so they were blindsided as tech and automation began destroying jobs at a rapid pace. Then, when they began using tech loopholes to get around labor laws, creating the gig economy, which began destroying good-paying jobs quickly, all the while these companies talk about how good and innovative they are, even though all their core technology was paid for by us, the taxpayers. And here we are now, thinking that corporations just recently became evil. They were evil from their very inception. People say they are amoral, but the founders believe them quite rightly to be immoral, 
through a chain of deniability and planned ignorance by the owners. And what is sad is that being pro-business is not exactly pro-business, it's pro-corporation. Thanks to corporations being involved in politics and lobbying, the government cut down on their taxes and slashed government science research, slowing down our advances as a planet. One generation taxes their wealthy and pumps money into their infrastructure, open sourcing, and science and labor, and the next generation of corporations that spawn from that end up lobbying to slow down that tech boom, reduce innovations, sit on patents that should be open source, like when they got into business, and crush labor. Then we have to reorganize and figure out how to get us back to that point again, which at this point seems to take about 100 years, if you count the research booms of the 1860s and the 1960s. If we go at this rate, we won't see another big research boom until the 2060s, and I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait that long. Corporations are also set up to make the most money possible in the short term, ignoring the long-term consequences. CEOs must constantly produce a profit or lose their jobs, even if retooling and spending on worker education or innovation would help the company stay afloat longer. This can destroy old behemoths that fail to innovate, which is just fine for the stockholders if the businesses that replace them aren't unionized. In fact, there's an entire industry of private equity firms buying up failing companies, screwing workers out of their pensions with bankruptcy laws, and breaking the company up and selling off parts of what should have been a viable long-term company. In the long term, a government that is not corrupt, provides for the people, educates its population, builds good infrastructure, spends a large chunk on research, doesn't entangle itself in pointless conflicts, forces everyone to pay a fair wage to create a robust middle class that can buy a large quantity of things, is best for business long term, but it's terrible for short term gain, so corporations will just naturally do everything they can to damage this and feast off the gaping wound. Chapter 9, The Power of PR Corporations use marketing and public relations to create doubt in populations about things they are doing, even when the science is very clear about it. They started with lead, denigrating the scientists who brought up that lead shouldn't be used in gas as it was making kids dumber and more violent, dropping their IQs and impulse control. They did it for pollution. Sugar companies were able to blame fat for health problems that they caused with enough marketing and dollars. Tobacco used immoral cash to make people doubt just how strong the link between lung cancer and addictions and smoking actually was, using astroturfing, fake grassroots activism, to make the politicians think the average voter actually cared about these issues. And now here we are with climate change. No bigger smear campaign has been waged as to make people doubt the science of validity. Not only making people hate and doubt climate scientists, but all science is now up for debate by people who have no real understanding of it, getting the government to defund a lot of science research. We could have easily fixed climate change back in the 80s, had we jumped on it when we first began seeing serious data that Exxon knew back in the 70s, which would have happened if we had created another space race style spending into research and created cheap clean energy quickly. But the companies that own coal and oil couldn't lose all that money in the ground even though it was the moral thing to do. Instead they actively worked to prevent new fuel resources and make climate change a polarized issue instead of what used to be bipartisan, dividing our nation at the very seams. Quite often, instead of innovating, companies that know how to do things cheaply will instead just adjust the flavors or varieties and milk it for all it's worth, giving us the illusion of variety and choice and focusing on marketing over innovation. Marketing is great for corporations, but it's not so great for smaller mid-sized businesses who can't compete. You innovate or die quickly. Giant corporations can take hundreds of years to die. 
former innovation tech companies often stop innovating and instead just buy up other startups either to mass produce or suppress an innovation that would make some of their own products obsolete, but will slow its entry into the population and retain a monopoly on it to keep prices high. Robotics, Google, food processing companies, multimedia companies, and medical companies all act more like innovation brokers and invention banks as opposed to innovators themselves. Corporations must also grow, so they can't make their products too high quality, or they can't have repeat customers. Planned obsolescence is essential to the corporate model. If people had good quality things that don't break or lose their usefulness, no one will buy in mass, and a company may have to invest in new things people may actually want, instead of making things that break and creating trash and wasted energy, but with a lot less profit. Chapter 10, A Road Not Taken it didn't have to be this way. We didn't have to be run by corporations. We could still have a free market without corporations, with all the economies of scale that corporations provided. The founders never wanted this. Adams believed that no matter what, the wealthy would always acquire more and more until liberties and political imbalance ruled. Jefferson believed that it would all be balanced until we left our agrarian roots, even though his pushing for standardized parts is what gave us the second industrial revolution, removing us from an agrarian society. Pierre-Joseph Proudhon is considered the father of anarchism, but his ideas are considered rather weak for modern anarchs and now label his theories as mutualism. It's a midway alternative between Marx's concept of capitalism and socialism. We would still have a free market, but make corporations illegal again, and making the workers part owners and runners of the company, with either direct democracy in the workplace or a representative democracy depending on which work better for the company. At the moment, cooperatives can't compete with corporations because they focus more on their impacts on community and human health and labor so they can't survive in direct competitions to organizations that solely focus on profit. With corporations out of the way, cooperatives would be able to survive and thrive without wrecking the environment and ignoring the workers who actually do the job, instead of someone whose sole job it is to squeeze out profit in a year. A B Corp is a concept that requires half the board of a company to be elected representatives of the workers who have to live and work in the community so that profits for shareholders are only half the equation. Elizabeth Warren recently put forth a bill forcing all corporations to become B Corps that would be great for America but terrible for short-term corporate gains, so that won't happen. Another midpoint idea is to jack up corporate taxes but give B Corps very low taxes. And if you say that democracy in the workplace won't work, Germany has been doing it on a small scale since the end of the war with unions baked into them. Having a say in corporate decisions and in hiring and firing instead of just blocking people from getting fired like what Taft-Hartley did. Another example that anarchs love to point to, but is actually a perfect example of mutualism succeeding, is the Mondragon Corporation of Spain, which is a worker-owned and run company with radical efficiency, employee satisfaction, and high quality of work. The workers are in the driver's seat of the company and have a say in their leadership. They aren't working for the man, they are their own man, and they own their labor and are not alienated from their labor, things both Adam Smith and Marx pointed out as serious problems in corporations. Chapter 11, Inevitable Hell from Inaction. Now we get to the extreme end of Marx's prediction, that automation will replace the worker and the wealthy will own all the means of production and we won't, similar to a lord owning a land and we poor serfs, if we are lucky enough, will be able to work for pennies while many will live homeless and will only pick up as automation continues to destroy good paying low education jobs like trucking and the skilled trades. 
If education costs money, it becomes akin to the company store, and education institutions corner the market and can jack up prices as it is the only method to upward mobility, and you spend the rest of your life trying to pay off your debt working at a job you hate just to keep yourself above water. It's why the idea of an automation tax and a carbon tax to pay for a guaranteed basic income, recommended by tech moguls like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, because no one can buy their stuff and their business model will collapse without the customers, is not such a bad idea. Carbon tax can be divided equally among the nation as energy credits to offset the rising prices and give choice to people as to what kind of energy they want to buy until clean tech and infrastructure can catch up to carbon energy costs. Automation, whose underpinning was paid for by our tax dollars, now throw people out of work at a faster and faster rate. A tax could slow that down a little bit, allowing us all equally to get a return on our tax investment in research spending. If nothing else, equal money for food, healthcare, education, and housing should be free to all as thanks to automation, economies of scale make them all affordable and cheap, but thanks to our corporate tactics, jack all their prices up, creating a glut of both food and housing, with food that rots while people go hungry, and houses that sit empty while people are homeless. And depending on how you calculate the math, just making them free would actually save taxpayers money. Corporations don't just become evil, they've always been evil. They were created as amoral institutions that created a chain of deniability, snatched up political power because it made stockholder money, created a wall of deniability and ignorance for their shareholders, colonized and destroyed civilizations, locked people into slavery, harsh labor, or sweatshops, either legally or illegally, and used intimidation and coercion to do one thing, Get their shareholders' profits by any means necessary. Laws, ethics, and labor be damned. Morality is just another word for bad business strategies in corporations, and instead of taking us back to the first 100 years of the nation and removing bankruptcy protections from corporations, government instead plays whack-a-mole with regulations when enough people get hurt by one corporation or another, which is always and will always be just a temporary fix. Corporations are evil and must be ended if our planet is to survive, and if we wish to enjoy any of the fruits of our labors and have a happy, prosperous future. The future is up to us. We can have prosperity for all on a living planet or prosperity for few on a dying one. The decision is up to us and how we view and handle corporations who care about nothing more than making money. So thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. Please subscribe, and if your podcast site has the option, give me a like or review. I'll be doing this podcast weekly and try to get it out on the same day, so I hope to see you here next week, ready to be filled with new ideas. A big thank you goes out to Elias Garcia Guevara and Joe Taylor, who sponsor the show at $10 a month at the Wapawet level on Patreon. Please consider donating as well if you can, and thank you all for listening.